So were you to walk into a market basket, having landed from another planet with a little bit of context for American history, you could safely assume it was 1981? The other day, I went on a trip to my local grocery store with a friend of mine, Julia Furukawa. It's unique. It's special. Our mission was to compare three products. Grape juice, lipstick, and the third is a bottle of wine. Okay. Should we try and match the color of the wine to the sugar almond? <laughs> it's kind of a rosé color. <laughs> yeah. The salmon rosé. Salmon rosé. The reason I wanted to do this should become clear in a second. Would you care to read the ingredients label on this grape juice? Grape juice from concentrate, filtered water, grape juice concentrate, grape juice, ascorbic acid, vitamin C, citric acid for tartness. Would you care to read the ingredient label on the lipstick? Rinseus communis, castor seed oil, isopropyl isosterate. Let's skip ahead. This goes on for a full minute, 15 seconds. Yellow five lake, red six lake, red 27 lake, yellow six lake, orange five, red 27, blue one lake, carmine, red 21. That was not an easy task. <laughs> that was... And now, uh, now, can you please read the ingredient label on this bottle of wine? Okay. There is just a Surgeon General's warning, and it contains sulfites. That's all we have. There is no ingredient label on this <laughs> bottle of wine. There is not. Um, what would you guess is in this bottle of wine? I would hope it's something adjacent to grape juice, but <laughs> there's, there's really no telling. The reason I'd had Julia pick out a lipstick is because the U.S. cosmetics industry is notorious for controversial loopholes. Loopholes which allow companies not to disclose certain ingredients in their formulas. But when we looked at the lipstick next to the rosé, with its long list of ingredients, CoverGirl looked downright transparent. What would you say if I told you that there are up to 70 additives that can be used in a bottle of wine. I would be surprised that 70 things could even fit inside this bottle. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a little bit unsettling in a way, yeah. This is Outside In. I'm Justine Paradise, in for Nate Hedgie this week. Wine is considered to be an expression of place and climate, of centuries-old traditions. And that does exist, but these days, a lot of wine is a product of an industrialized agricultural system. Today on Outside In, we take a look at what really goes into your wine and at a growing movement to explore just how natural wine can be. Cheers. The basic process of making a wine doesn't sound that complicated. Wine is essentially fermented, aged grape juice. But there are lots of choices and extra steps a winemaker can add at each step along the way. For instance, to ferment the juice, do you let the indigenous yeast do its thing, or do you add commercial-grade yeast? Do you age the wine in steel or in oak or concrete? These choices are about taste and style, but they're also about quality control. After all, the weather is different every growing season, and so too are the grapes. So to keep things nice and predictable, you might turn to some chemical intervention. 
there's a big call right now to have ingredients listed on a bottle of wine. You know, it's not just grapes. This is Helen Johannesson. She's the host of a podcast called Wine Face, and she co-owns a restaurant plus a wine shop and club in L.A. You know, that's me. I'm a, I'm a lover of wine, lover of food, expert, some might say. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> in the United States, there's a list of almost 70 ingredients, in addition to grape juice, which are acceptable to use in the making of a bottle of wine. That list includes various enzymes and acids, proteins and gases, defoaming agents, tannins, and even wood chips to get those nice notes of aged oak, but without the barrel. There's so many different ways to produce a product that tastes the same year after year. But of all those additives, there's only one you might see listed on the bottle. The one big bully man in the room or woman is sulfur. If you've ever looked at your wine and thought, what the hell is an added sulfite? And then shrugged and poured yourself a glass. Well, sulfites are preservatives. Each molecule releases a little bit of dioxide gas. That's two oxygens if you're counting. Sulfites are used in a lot of food products to keep them shelf stable. But sulfur is also a natural byproduct of fermentation, thus the added sulfites. Some winemakers choose to add more in order to keep their wine from spoiling. But sulfur is like the least of your worries. Like too much sulfur is not great. A little bit of sulfur is fine. There's other things that are a little more sneaky, like Velcrum. Velcrin. That's a trademarked brand name of a substance called dimethyl dicarbonate. Velcrin is another tool to stop microbial activity inside a beverage, to sterilize it so that the wine doesn't spoil later. The company's product fact sheet asserts that it quickly breaks down to, quote, negligible amounts of methanol and carbon dioxide. By the time you drink the wine, it's ostensibly safe. But when you apply it, it requires a hazmat suit. Moving on to other additives, you might say some wines shouldn't be considered vegetarian. You know, there's innards of animals or shrimp shells that are used to help in the clarifying process to make a wine look clean, look, you know, the right color, have transparency if it's supposed to. The list of additives also includes egg whites, gelatin, an animal protein called casein, and fish bladders, which I don't think is what people mean when they recommend pairing a white wine with fish. Another biggie is also a trademarked ingredient with the incredible name Mega Purple. Mega Purple is a highly concentrated, basically, sugar syrup that's made from grape must. Must, by the way, is just another word for freshly crushed grape juice. And it's used to balance out an imbalance that's in a wine. It all goes back to the farming. In a really good growing season, and when you pick a grape at its optimal ripeness, the fruit is going to have lots of sugar and color and depth of flavor. So you're trying to pick it when it's in its most jammy state, and you're like, this is going to ferment perfectly. But some of these big vineyards are practically grape factories. They're not always waiting for that perfect jammy state. When you're making wine at a certain scale, or you're just not that experienced, you might not care how ripe the grape is or not ripe the grape is yet. And that will lead to an imbalance in the pH. It will lead to uh, a lack of sugar. In other words, 
Mega Purple helps cover up unwanted flavors from iffy grapes. Or it gives a bottle the same consistent color year after year. It's basically a high sugar, very purple grape juice concentrate. These are the things that turn your teeth super purple, like after two sips, right? Like if you drink like a really intense 15, 16% full bodied red wine, your, your tongue might turn a little red, like your teeth, but that's after three glasses, right? What we're talking about is like two sips, three sips. And this isn't stuff that you're necessarily going to encounter at your favorite restaurant you go to. This is something on a much different scale. You know, this is really kind of bottom of the barrel. But then maybe I'm wrong because it's unregulated. We don't know. If you're trying to figure out how you know what ingredients the winemaker used in making a bottle, the short answer is you can't. Wine, beer, and liquor aren't regulated by the Food and Drug Administration, which requires labels and nutritional information for other stuff you eat and drink. Instead, they're regulated by the Alcohol, Tobacco, Tax, and Trade Bureau, which doesn't have the same standards. Bottom line, if a given bottle always tastes the same, year after year, or if it's available in every grocery store and gas station market across the country, that's probably a sign that there's some chemistry happening behind the scenes. It's a formula, you know, like no one really knows what's in a chicken nugget. But they always taste the same. I think it takes a little bit of the the charm away from it all, right? Like, you think all you're feeding yourself is just grape juice that's had a little bit more uh, experience in life than the Welch's. Back at the New England grocery store institution that is Market Basket with my friend Julia, we started talking about our discomfort with all this. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, when you pour yourself a glass of wine, there's, you know, how people sort of swirl it and go, oh, these, I taste notes of stone and of, you know, wind. It's like, oh, I taste France, or I taste Portugal in this case, in this glass. But if there are all these other ingredients between us and the place, is that really what's going on? Yeah, I don't know. It's like, I mean, whether you want to include this or not, like as somebody who's like, at one point in their life, happily ingested a four loco, it's like, I don't know if I can fully complain about like the quality of an alcoholic beverage I'm about to consume. But like, I don't know, it makes me think, twice about like the experience that I feel as if I'm going to have sitting down on my deck or something with a glass of crisp yellowtail it I don't know it doesn't feel quite as special but then again if that's what you like and that's what's available like there's no problem with it truly no 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 judgment about the yellowtail or the four loco or whatever (laughs) have you it's just I think that what it's trying to tell you that it is 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 perhaps not what it is and that that's what like Fort Loco is not trying to trick you in any way it, it is oh, what it is yeah, you know by the branding yeah you know what you're getting into fruit punch <laughs> outside in we'll be right back
In France, there's a system for labeling regionally produced goods like wine, cheese, and meat. It's called the Appellation d'Origine Contrôlée, or AOC. This is the system that makes sure a Burgundy comes from Burgundy, or Champagne comes from the Champagne region of France. And the story of how the AOC came to be has something to do with an insect, a small but mighty bug called Phylloxera. Phylloxera is an aphid, native to North America, which feeds on the roots of grapevines. In the mid-1800s, this little bug was inadvertently carried across the Atlantic. And upon arrival, it began to feed on the esteemed grapes of Europe. These old European vines, known as vinifera, they had no natural defenses against this bug. And by 1900, two-thirds of the vineyards with the old European variety had been decimated. The future of European wine, and therefore the future of all civilization as we know it, it was in danger. Ironically, the answer to this problem came from a continent once maligned for its inferior vintages, North America. The only way that they were able to save their own vines were to graft them to American rootstock, which could coexist with the phylloxera. That's Lee Campbell, a longtime sommelier and wine consultant. She explains that today, nearly every grapevine in Europe is grafted to American rootstock. That was why we have, we still have vinifera grapes to drink. That's why we still have Chardonnay, to, you know, French Burgundian Chardonnay to drink today. They have to be grafted to American rootstock, otherwise they cannot survive. But as vineyards were recovering from phylloxera and then later from World War I, European wines became scarce. And with scarcity came scams. People producing low-quality wine and slapping fake labels on them, claiming they'd come from this famous valley or that legendary vineyard. And that problem is part of the reason the AOC system exists. In each region and subregion, there are standards for what grapes you're allowed to use, the percent alcohol content that has to be achieved, and what additives and practices are allowed at every step in the process. That protects consumers from would-be frauds. But it also has a way of making it hard to experiment for the winemakers. But by the 1980s, some growers wanted more freedom. While they might have appreciated some of the traditions and practices tied to the AOC, they also wanted to try other approaches. And so some of them moved outside the AOC system. This was the beginning of a movement towards what's now called natural wine. I think the one sentence that always helps me define natural wine to my team and my customers is a natural wine is a wine that has nothing added and nothing taken away. That's Helen Johannesson again, host of the podcast Wine Face. Maybe you've encountered natural wine yourself. Perhaps you've picked up a bottle of orange wine or sipped a sparkly pet nat in a candlelit bar. Or maybe you're a little skeptical because in food, the word natural is basically meaningless. The only thing you know for sure is that someone's trying to sell you something. The natural wine movement doesn't have an official label or a certifying organization that checks the barrels for sulfite concentrations. Natural wine doesn't even mean organic, or at least organic doesn't cover it, because sometimes Organic wines might still contain some of the additives we talked about earlier. You could have a mass-produced wine that is, you're farming it organically, but 
are you making it in a true fashion? Probably not. Natural wine takes it further. In a way, it's about focusing on old techniques, a way of making wine from a time before things like Mega Purple and Velcarin ever existed. It's sometimes called low intervention. So typically, no commercial yeast, animal innards, or tannins. And year to year, there's no guarantee the same bottle by the same brand will taste all that similar. Natural wine is just based in the traditions that have been with us for years and years of people that have been making wines and understanding how their land reacts. And I think if you are following sort of the tenets of people who have have done this for hundreds of years, you're going to be okay. If you are trying to make something that, I don't know, is more of a commercial product, um, I think it's going to be very hard for you to make a natural wine. Many makers of natural wine take an approach called biodynamic farming. It incorporates composting, crop rotation, and also spiritually informed practices like timing the harvest with the phases of the moon, for example. It's all about how do I not sort of disrupt the vine, but create an amazing environment for the vine? And how do I not use synthetic herbicides and pesticides. And so there's a lot of winemakers that employ cover crop down in between the vines, various plants that are insect deterrents. Another simple thing that can differentiate natural wine is that the grapes often aren't picked by machine. They're picked by hand. Hand harvesting is a lot of work, but it's also more precise than machine harvesting. This means that winemakers don't end up with grapes which are under or overripe which introduce flavors that are quote-unquote off and mess up the harvest. Fewer bad grapes means less of a need to balance it out with a splash of chemical intervention. It's all kind of an individual artistic practice. When you really get to know them and meet them, it, it is like being in an artist's studio because they're so immersed in their philosophy and it's, it's really just kind of amazing. Perfect. Now, now behave like you're at a party. <laughs> <laughs> so, cheers. Perfect. Cheers. But here's a question you might be asking. Does natural wine taste any different? Is it good? Is it fresh or funky or what? Tasting notes? Um, very smooth. At a dinner with my family earlier this summer, I popped a bottle of red made with a variety of grape called Gamay. It is in the style of Beaujolais, I think, in general. Beaujolais to me are lighter wines. What can I say? If you can't tell, my family likes wine. So you, you feel like it's pretty classic. Um, I wouldn't know the difference, but now that you've told me it's a natural wine, I'm thinking I need to drink more natural wine. <laughs> this is a very drinkable. I, I actually think it's uh, more mature, more complex. Yeah, well, one of the things that I I'm sometimes... impressed. <laughs> I'm impressed with that analysis. I... <laughs> what do you think, Elsie? Would you drink more of it? Well, if this. I liked it, I would. Do you, so do you like it? <laughs> I haven't tried it yet. Yeah, have a sip. <laughs> I've been talking. Well, I think it's very nice. <laughs> I do want to be clear that it's not just self-described natural winemakers who use techniques like biodynamic farming or hand harvesting. 
Actually, some of the oldest and most famous vineyards in the world use techniques espoused by natural winemakers, but don't market themselves that way. And natural wine is a broad and malleable category. Some bottles are really expensive. Others you can get for under 20 bucks. I've tried some that were too wild for me, and others that were clean and gorgeous. And very similar to some of the most traditional wines that you can find. Natural wine can be multi-layered and intense, or light and juicy, like the one we were trying. I don't think you should expect it to be something that it's not. Right. Natural it's wine? not a Cabernet. It is not a Merlot. It is not, it's not a Bordeaux. some deep experience <laughs> that you're going to have yeah, over, <clears throat> over time. The, the taste is fresh, and then you're done. Like craft beer and liquor, natural wine has gotten a lot more popular over the past couple decades. And now that it's arrived, people in the industry are debating what it really means. What set of rules should dictate what counts as natural wine, even if there's no official organization trying to enforce those rules? One debate is around one of the only ingredients listed on the bottle, sulfur, which again acts as a preservative and a stabilizer. There's arguments about if a winemaker chooses to use a certain amount of sulfur at bottling, if that still counts it as a natural wine. Here's Helen Johannesson again. That's why it's sort of undefined. It's like... What is someone going to do? They're going to throw away their entire year's work just because they had to use 10 parts per million of sulfur at bottling, which is nothing. To Lee Campbell, this debate can feel a little judgmental or dogmatic sometimes. Purists would say absolutely no sulfur and definitely no filtration. And everything is just sort of as simple and um, kind of ancient as as you can make the wine. Um, I think that I'm definitely a bit more moderate in my approach to that. You know, sulfur isn't always your enemy. In her view, yes, some people are more sensitive to sulfur than others, so it's good we're being mindful. But we can't make wine in the same way as we imagine people did centuries ago. Not if you want to drink a French wine in California. You have to remember that back in the day, um, people drank wine from a local winemaker or a local cooperative. They put it in a big jug Um, And they took it home and they drank it within the week. But now we have things in bottles. We're shipping them across oceans. They're traveling on trucks. The irony here, there are a lot of ironies in wine, apparently, is that the very thing that so many people supposedly love about wine is also the very thing that threatens its future. Change, particularly climate change. Just last spring, a late frost hit much of France after the vines had already begun to bud. Growers tried to save their crop, laying heated cables between the vines, even lighting rows of torches. But in some regions, the damage was extensive. And then there's the question of wildfires, especially in winemaking regions like California and Australia. There's something called smoke taint that gets into uh, the wines if the grapes have been hugely affected by smoke. The, the grapes might still be alive, but they've been so adulterated by the flavor and the taste of smoke that it changes completely the, the flavor of the, of the wine. And I think what we're trying to decide is, is it acceptable or not acceptable? Is it part of the terroir or is it a flaw? Wine lovers love to talk about terroir and the connection between wine and the place where it's made. 
But as temperatures rise, the next time my family sits down to share a good bottle of red wine around the dinner table, it might not taste the same way it has in the past. Would anyone like some more wine? <laughs> I can't remember. And Lee thinks that the future of wine is going to be about embracing that kind of change with curiosity. That's what's so exciting about being in wine is that it is really a moving target. Always, you always need to keep learning about it to stay sort of fresh. Can't say. We should drink it every day of the week. (laughs) It doesn't taste like it's been stuck in a basement for five years or even six months. I think it tastes alive. Alive. looking to explore the world of natural wine, we'll share a few tips in the show notes, but here's a couple to get you started. Find a brick and mortar wine shop local to you, especially if they already support natural winemakers and small producers. A lot of wine shops offer free or low cost tastings as well, so you can figure out what you like without spending a lot of money. Also, one tip for reading a wine bottle. Turn the bottle around and look at the importer on the back. There are certain importers who specifically seek out natural winemakers. Essentially, they're doing some of the work for you. We'll put a couple importers you can look out for in the show notes. And one last thing, try not to get intimidated or be totally pure about it. As Helen Johannesson likes to say, wine is for enjoying and wine is for everyone. It's supposed to be fun. Although I guess I have to say, in the United States, only if you're over 21. Follow the directions on the bottle and drink responsibly. This episode of Outside In was reported and produced by me, Justine Paradise. It was mixed and edited by Taylor Quimby. Our host is Nate Hedgie, and our executive producer is Rebecca Lavoie. Our team also includes Felix Poon and Jung Yoon Han. Special thanks to my family for letting me record at our dinner party. That's Lucy Lesk, Steve and Jenny Paradise, Samuel Golding, and Elsie Turner Matthews. Music by Blue Dot Sessions and Matt Large. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.